Welcome Tulane fans to another edition of the Fear the Wave cast. I'm Kelly Camarda, your host. I want to take a minute to remind you everybody about the Fear the Wave Collective Group. It's our NIL collective to provide name, image, and likeness opportunities for Tulane student athletes. Every time you hear an athlete on the Fear the Wave cast or the Jimmy O show, they're being paid an NIL fee for their appearance. You can look us up on PayPal at Fear the Wave Collective Group, or um, you can send a check payable to Fear the Wave Collective Group to P.O. Box 55291 Metairie, Louisiana, 70055. Your generosity enables us to have these student athletes on our shows and allow them to take advantage of their name, image, and likeness opportunities. With that, I am extremely excited to introduce you to Dr. Lauren Miller. Dr. Miller is a mental health specialist for the Tulane Athletics Department. Uh, Dr. Miller, thanks for being here and taking some time. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about mental health for student athletes. It's a, a topic that is kind of near and dear to my heart, having gone through my own mental health struggles with being a student athlete and, and transitioning back into the, you know, the regular life of a, a non-athlete. Um, and, and because we've seen some recent headlines in college athletics about mental health struggles of student athletes. So um, can you just give us an, an idea of your background and, and, you know, what led you to this line of work? Absolutely. So um my background is in social work. Um, I have a doctorate in um, from the School of Social Work here at Tulane, uh, where my focus was really in athletic retirement and transition out of sport. Um, I also received my master's here at Tulane, um, but a big part of who I am and how I got here is the fact that I myself was a division one athlete. I played field hockey at Duke University. I was a three-time All-American, two-time captain, one time we made to the final four. So a very successful team within the ACC, usually top 10. Um, and that has really been a cornerstone um, and foundation of who I am. Uh, that being said, I, I, I studied psychology while I was there. And, um, and something that I really noticed while being a college athlete was that there was a lack of mental health support within athletics. Um, me, myself, I definitely went through my own period of time where I needed, um, a, like mental health support rather than really sports psychology and rather than it being geared towards performance enhancement. And in fact, the year that I probably was looking for assistance the most was one of my most successful years. I was, you know, an all American. I had been selected to all the top accolades, a top leader in scoring as a defense player in the ACC. Um, so you really never would have known it, um, that I really was struggling. And honestly, I wasn't sleeping a lot of the time. That was the biggest symptom that I was having at the moment. And, um, and so I kind of noticed it then kind of went to the back of my head, you know, as I was growing up and figuring out what it is that I wanted to do. I found my way into social work, which I knew I really wanted to go into some sort of counseling and, and being a therapist um, after doing a stint of finance and really realizing that's very much what I wanted to do was be in counseling. Um, I came down to Tulane, did my master's. Um, and while I was in my master's program, I realized um, just I became more passionate about the athletics piece. Um, however, I also knew I needed to work on my own transition out of sport during that time. And I knew it was important for me, although perhaps wanting to eventually come back into that 
athletics arena, I needed to do my own healing prior to coming in so I can make sure I could give my very best to the athletes that I was currently serving. Um, so I worked in the social service. I worked in um, for a K through 12 school um, prior to um, going into working at the professional athlete care team through the Center for Sport at Tulane and servicing former NFL players which where when I was there, I realized um, I love working with, you know, the retirement concept, but I really like the idea of the postvention side and being able to work on, uh, I mean, being able to work on the prevention side rather than the postvention side. And so I wanted to be able to work with um, college athletes. It's kind of where my heart's always been. And especially being able to work with female athletes. Um, it was a big, um, really important to me. Uh, and so that's kind of how I ended up here, founded the program. And now we've watched it grow from me being part-time at Tulane, um, you know, really from a SAC initiative, that's how they kind of really started this position. To now I'm the director of our behavioral health department with another therapist on staff and a case manager. So that's kind of been my entire history of where I've gotten to and how I've gotten here today. Well, that's, that's incredible. And, you know, I don't think you can really talk about mental health without being willing to be vulnerable and, and share your own background and how, how you came to it. So I appreciate that very much. And um, I read a recent study that 33% of college athletes report signs of serious mental health issues. And as you said, a lot of these athletes are trained to be tough. They're trained to be mentally tough. They're trained to um, push through pain and, and not let things distract you from your sport. Um, are those things that you're seeing, or is that one of the biggest barriers to treating some of these student athletes? Yes, I think that um, definitely we're seeing more, right, whether more are reporting that they're suffering or more are suffering in general, right? I think those are always the chicken and the egg um, debates. But we do know with this generation and the way mental health in general, we're discussing it is people are becoming more vulnerable and they're becoming more open with the concept of receiving treatment, right? Um, if they are suffering mentally. And, um, and so I think that those numbers, yes, they are very reflective. And then I do think that athletes do suffer a little bit differently because what, what's a barrier to counseling for us is that a big part that I'm coming back to with most of my athletes is how to encourage them or how we can foster an environment where ultimately they trust themselves again, right? Um, and I think that that's what is kind of surprising to so many people is that like you have these athletes who are so um, skilled and they come across so confident when they're out there being able to achieve and drive and be persistent and um, ambitious towards these goals. But internally, they're suffering, honestly, with just basic confidence. They're suffering with basic connection. They're suffering with, you know, um, basic self-compassion in a lot of ways, right? That, that they can truly tell themselves, I'm okay and I'm doing okay. And that mistake isn't all defining. And that kind of comes back to the fact that they aren't really able to connect with themselves deeply. And that's where in athletics, a lot of times, the more advanced you become, the more competitive you become, uh, the more that's trained out of you. 
right? And kind of the example that you had said is, you know, in the weight room where you're kind of told like, oh, your body doesn't know what I was talking about, right? Like that's not, that's just discomfort, you know, or that, that just push through the pain, don't feel it, um, you know, don't listen to yourself, which there is some validity in that, that we can push ourselves and be ambitious and feel the discomfort and push through it so that you can become stronger, better, you know, more competitive. And how do we create language where the athletes also know the difference between discomfort and pain so that they know when it is okay to stop, right? And when they can actually listen to themselves and trust themselves and know that their body isn't against them, right? Their mind and their body are one and they're both out to seek this like high level of goals, whatever that looks like for that athlete. Um, but a lot of times in athletics, we're almost trained in this narrative that like your mind and your body are enemies, like they're competitors against one another. And that creates a lot of dissonance and a lot of dis, um, difficulty and disability in a lot of ways for athletes. Also creates a lot of injuries, I would imagine. Could, uh, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and, and another thing that I think that the general public may not understand is the how packed these student athletes' schedules are and how much they are asked to juggle on a given day. And I'll just give you kind of, you know, this is a you know 18-year-old example, but my my schedule, my first year at Tulane was I had class from nine to, to twelve. I had a break for lunch. I had a class from one to one fifty. I had to be dressed on the field for practice at two fifteen. We practiced from two fifteen to five forty-five. We would lift weights from six to seven. Then we'd eat dinner, and then we'd come back and do study hall from eight to ten thirty. And so you're talking about from the time you wake up at seven and eat breakfast to the time you go to bed at ten thirty eleven o'clock pretty much every minute you have is spoken for. Um, is that something you see that people feel like they don't have time to reach out and, and take time to try to fix whatever's going on internally? Yes and no. I think it's a learned skill, right? And I think that that's a big part of athletics. Like one of my, you know, I'd say one of my strengths as a professional and as a person has been my time management skill because I had that schedule that you just described, right? Like the only difference was that we lifted from six to seven in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, um, and then straight to class and practice at, you know, three, but you have to be dressed and ready like an hour before that, you, you, you know, depending on how many talks you're giving like that day, what kind of aging video, right? Like it's just, like you said, it's a packed schedule. And so, some of it's coaching, I'd say that we have to, I say coaching like that as a support system, as a staff that we kind of coach our athletes to, to see like, okay, well, really what are priorities, right? Because in the times that you have free and, you know, you can't see me, but I'm doing quotations, but in the time that you have free, we have to get in treatment with your trainers. So you have physical rehab and then we're talking, you know, mental health rehab, as well as, you know, something I think we're probably going to get to later in the podcast is like that identity, um, <clears throat> looking at how do we diversify our identity, right? So some sort of diversification. And so having some like hobbies and, and things that you do to, to relax and cope. And so 
yes, this, the schedule becomes restrictive. However, you know, my caseload's full. So like somehow our kids do find their way in. It just might take some coaching to figure out, well, where can we plop those slots in? Um, how flexible can me and my counterparts also be? Um, so that, you know, it's like, well, they have, you know, 35 minutes between class and um, lift or, you know, once in a while I'll get a kid who comes up here dressed for practice um, and we meet right until they got to be on the court or the field for practice. So we can find it. Um, it just depends if it's a priority for the student. Understood. And what can other student athletes do? You know, assuming, assuming they're saying, okay, you know, what are some of the things we're looking for as signs that one of our teammates um, or your, your child or, or whomever you're talking about, whether it's a high school player, or a college player, may be suffering and not speaking out about it? What are some of the things that we can look for to try to, you know, intervene or say, hey, are you okay? So the big ones that we look at are sleep and eating, right? Um, and if there's a change in that from someone's baseline, right? So, um, and then you're kind of looking at their mood, their, their temperament, really. And that's where parents, coaches, friends, they actually all kind of, you know, when you're in college, you're living amongst everybody. So you kind of have that, those little insights into one another. Um, and so that's what we're really looking at, right? Like what is a normal baseline? And literally we're just doing our sophomore workshop right now. We call it our mental health and leadership Academy. And on Sunday night, that's like the kids were, you know, I was driving home the point of like, what is your baseline? What does normal look like for you? And because what's normal for you is going to be different than what's normal for someone else. Some of us require 10 hours of sleep. Some of us can function perfectly on five hours of sleep, right? So you just got to know what, what is right for you. And usually those around you kind of have an idea of that. So sleep and eating is huge because you see a change in appetite, um, increase, decrease, um, motivation to eat, to be around food. If we start to see something change there, something we just want to kind of look into. Sleep, same thing. Are you sleeping a lot more or a lot less than you have before? Are you getting rested sleep, not rested sleep? Um, and then also what's it coordinated with, right? Like are those on days that you had a really heavy lift? Is it after a game, right? Like, so we want to kind of see some pattern in there. Um, and then your temperament, right? Like, are you just more irritable recently? You're just having like more outbursts. Um, are you feeling sad? Are you on the verge of tears more often? Are you typically somebody who is social and recently you're like, I just want to be by myself? Or are you typically an introvert that likes to be by yourself? And right now you're either more so want to be that way, or you're looking like you're spending more time out partying, things like that, that are just like not typically you. Um, that's just something we want to pay attention to and ask a few more questions. It doesn't mean something is glaringly wrong. We just want to ask some more questions to understand why all of a sudden this change of behavior. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about how this fall impacted the mental health of our student athletes um, having to pick up and move thinking you know we're probably going to be away for three days and then being gone for over over a month um, what kind of stress does that put on the mental health of student athletes being removed from their homes 
and not understanding or knowing, you know, what they have to come back to. Um, how, how did you cope with that? What are some of the things we did? Because I feel like to, with the student athletes that I've spoken to, we handled it really well. And uh, they've all said that, you know, that they felt cared for and they felt taken care of. So what are some of the things that we did to try to mitigate any damage to the psyche or mental health of our athletes? Well, I think, you know, I don't think that our MO was really, okay, how can we minimize any damage to psyche? However, I think based on our kind of principles and our approach of communication, standard care, um, how are we going to provide some sort of standard care, some sort of stability and schedule, um, structure for the athletes, um, and consistency across the board. I think that those are what really helped our athletes, um, do better in that huge flux, flux of change. Right. And, and so, and those are things that are not, um, that, that we know really help and support individuals in a time of unknown and in a time of great change, right? If we can provide some sort of schedule, consistency, routine, clear communication, so you're able to prepare, know what's coming up, what, what's within your control for it, and then um, having it be consistent across the board for like all of our athletes, right? So all of our in-season athletes, all of our out-of-season athletes, um, anyone who needed extra support, right? Like based on family needs, um, international students, right? So just trying to really think about all of those different aspects and how we can create some sort of consistency for everybody. I think that that's what really helped our student athletes to the best that we could. Now, you mentioned one of your um, interests is transitioning athletes into, you know, from being an athlete to post-athletic career and transitioning them from being a student athlete to being you know, a regular, I, I say civilian, regular member of society. So tell me about some of the, some of those interests and what are some of the things that you are doing or are studying in how to better prepare our student athletes for life after sport? Definitely. So my passion, I would say, is around, right, like how to prepare athletes for athletic retirement, how to prepare them for end of athletic career transition. And I have a passion for that because I think we spend so much time culturally and societally, you know, celebrating athletes in their peak. And their peak is like in their 20s. And our society is living until their 80s, 90s, right? And... So the fact that we're celebrating and almost literally telling people word for word, oh, your purpose is to play basketball. Like that's clearly was your God-given purpose. Well, what do you do when you're 26 and you're done, right? Do you no longer have a purpose? I mean, I have a really hard time stomaching that. And so my passion really became around the fact that these are people, athletes are people and they're people who 
hopefully are going to live a very long, prosperous, successful life for whatever that looks like for them. And we need to start treating them as such, right? And, uh, and so that's really where my passion kind of came from. Um, and, and so with that, what are we doing? The other big thing that I saw around that was like, you know, athletics, we keep, um, we train them to get better and better until they reach a top level. And sometimes some will go pro uh, and some won't. And me being a female athlete at the top of my game, you know, member of the national team and such, I also knew I was eventually not, I mean, you're eventually going to stop because I was a female athlete. I'm not going to be able to make a life out of uh, and make money out of this sport. Um, However, even still, even though I kind of knew that in my head, I still came to the end of my own athletic career and was like, okay, well now what? Right. I remember walking onto campus and my whole goal was to play college field hockey. And then I got there and I was like, okay, now what? Like, what do I do while I'm here? I play, but like, what else am I working towards while I'm here? Right. Especially because athletes are typically so goal driven. And so giving them a goal of like, what are we going to work for now? Or what do you want to do now? Um, And so that's kind of really sums up like what my passion is. So how do I work with that? As we, um, I've done a research study, a pilot study uh, with the American conference. And we looked at um, a senior transition group. So how could we prepare our seniors and kind of follow them for some longitudinal amount of time? Then COVID hit. And so that made that difficult to really be able to compare class to class. Um, but what we do is we still have seen that those who participated in the program do have um, a higher rate kind of of resilience and well-being, lower scores of depression and anxiety, and a higher qualitative analysis of feeling more prepared for life um, into like that next transition after participating in our course. So in the course, which we'll continue to offer, and we're just getting ready to offer it for our spring athletes in April, uh, our spring senior athletes um, this April, is that we really focus on a few different constructs. So one is um, we look at grief. Uh, we look at coping skills, we look at, um, sorry, we look at grief, coping skills, identity, um, elements of support systems, some life skills, how do we put all of this together, and then just mental health, wellness, um, and warning signs. And so when we look at all of these, and not in that order, how I said them, but all relevant. Um, at the end of it, our athletes really come out of it, hopefully the idea being with like a safety plan, a plan in place where if they are suffering from any of these pillars, we've discussed it. We have some resources around it. They have some awareness around it. And ultimately they've created a plan for themselves in the end that if they're suffering, they know what to do with that information. So that's where we're at right now. And kind of that prevention side hopefully we can also make a connection on the alumni side though, right? Where that would be the ultimate goal of like, okay, here's how we do the prevention. And then we do the process because most athletes, as we've seen, which makes this field really difficult and this picture difficult to, to, to capture is that you need time to, um, to leave sport. Right. And so on average, right, that's looking like okay, you can do the prevention work, but somebody may not actually go through the stages of like what that intense athletic retirement feels like until three or four years post-sport. Because the first two years, you know, you might have some excitement getting into the workforce, making some money, um, starting to get ambition. You have a little bit of a tinge of like, oh, I miss my sport, but it's not really big. But then a few years later is when you might really start to feel more of that identity 
piece to it that's like, man, I just feel like I don't know who I am. And that's where you might have more symptoms of depression, anxiety, um, grief, you know, bereavement, loss, feelings around that. I think you just described my life. Uh, so to, to be candid, um, I struggled with this. I, I just turned 40 and I struggled with this until this past year. I, I actually sought treatment for it um, and did an intensive uh, outpatient program to try to identify the sources of the anxiety and depression and, and identity issues that I've been dealing with. So even for me, somebody who wasn't a, a really high performing college athlete, um, it, it affected me the same way that, that you're describing. So one of the goals I have with this Fear the Wave Collective group is developing a, um, an alumni network that can be supportive of our student athletes leaving their sport and entering into the entering into the real world and, and being a kind of a, um, you know, an organization where we can lift them up and provide them with support. Because once you leave school, a lot of times the resources go away, you know? And so there's a void there for those couple of years that, that you mentioned that if, if you don't intervene and you don't treat you know, you could be looking at a long, longer period of suffering, like, like you talked about. So um, what are some of the things we can do as alumni or fans or just supporters of our student athletes, um, either to, to bring more attention to this issue or to help, um, you know, hands-on help? What are some of the things you need? Yeah, I think that, um, Ray, like always, uh, my program has been growing, right? Like for, for the past few years. And honestly, like I literally created a program out of nothing. Um, and then, you know, we've had some really fortunate donors that have helped us expand, which has been huge. Um, so obviously that's always important. I think the connection point is always really important for alumni athletes, um, is, you know, it's how do we connect with that, that, that wave of out literally and right now I'm trying to make a pun there, but like that wave of outgoing um, athletes. Yeah. Right. And, um, and, and maybe it's not in the first few years, maybe it's a few years out, but how do we kind of create some sort of connection and also vulnerable and like real connection? Um, that's not always just focused around the networking piece and networking, or sorry about the career networking piece. Career networking is huge. It's a huge place for us to feel connected, welcome, into some sort of like, okay, I'm not alone, right? And trying to get some mentorship. But I also think there's an element of real life mentorship that can also take place. Um, and so I think that that's something that's always important, honestly, across the board for all institutions. You know, um, clearly I, I said I went to Duke. I am a Duke basketball fan. Uh, we're seeing this is a big year with Duke basketball, just with Coach K's retirement. And what you really kind of can see and notice with it is the collective he's built as like a brotherhood, right? Like that is, it's what they call it. It's a brotherhood. There's this um, support network that comes back and is around for all of these guys every single year. And that's unique. I don't think that you see that at every SEC school or, you know, um, across the country. And I don't think we see that in a lot of other sports. And so um, I think that that, concept that 
feel is what I think a lot of uh, alumni athletes are looking for. Because I think one thing we didn't mention before when we're talking about what contributes to perhaps mental health um, symptoms with athletes as they're transitioning out is also you go from being like important and special and like people knowing you and getting a lot of attention to then just being another person in the world. And there are a lot of people you meet in the world that are really successful in what they do. And that's great. There's enough success to go around for everyone, but that can be really jarring to your own personal, you know, ego or self. Right. And, um, even just that, that, that identity, that piece of being like, you know, I'm, I'm a student athlete that you, sometimes we feel really special when, and we are special being able to have that and achieve what we have with it. Um, and so sometimes when we lose that, we're like, oh, well, if I'm not special like that anymore, then who am I or what am I? Right. And so I think that having an alumni network also is where you can see that, um, how do we make it that the, it's not the external pieces that make us so special, but it's the internal pieces. And I think mentorship, um, support, that's a big way that we can really uh, model that and talk about it and, and celebrate it, that it really comes from within rather than externally. That's a really good point. And it's something that I definitely felt as well, that once you're out of your sport, you basically have been working towards this level your entire life. And now you're back at zero and you don't feel very special. You feel like you're, you know, you still have that mentality, that, that competitiveness, um, but you're now thrown into a, a new arena that you don't, may not know much about. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, an interesting transition. And I, I'll also comment on the, um, the networking piece or the, the brotherhood piece that you talked about. I feel like some former student athletes are hesitant to reach back out to their school as well. And, you know, you're like, well, I've graduated. I don't want to, you know, who am I to say I want to be involved or to be, um, you know, to get into contact with the, the current coaching staff who may not have been your coaching staff or um, to, to be involved with your former program. But I'll say this about Tulane. Since I have kind of reengaged with the program, um, and I, I'm a fifth generation Tulane graduate, so it's been in my blood forever. And Tulane was important to me long before I ever stepped foot on the campus. So when I reach back out, I, I am incredibly impressed with how much they've reached back and how welcoming they've been to, you know, just to talk to you or to, to introduce you to the new coaching staff that wasn't there when you were there. And to get you back involved. So I think the best thing we can do probably is expand that feeling and make people feel welcome and let them know that, hey, you know, we, we want you back. We, we need you just as much as you need us. Um, so I think that that's a, a great idea and something that we need to continue to try to develop. Um, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Um, this is, a, like I said, this is something that's really important to me. And if people have um, questions about how to support your, um, your efforts, where can they go? 
Um, I mean, obviously reaching out to our development team is always a great place to start. Um, you know, Dr. Sharvi Greer is doing so much for all student athlete initiatives and um, like student athlete welfare initiatives. Um, and, and so you can definitely reach out there and then you can always reach out to me directly if you, if you want, if you have any questions, um, concerns, comments, any student athletes are listening, they, you know, are totally able to reach out to me. Um, my email is l apple a-p-p-l-e at tulane.edu dr miller thank you again and for all you listeners if you want to get involved with the fear the wave collective group our nil uh program you can reach out to us um at ftwboosterclub at gmail.com um and you can uh give at both of the addresses we mentioned at the beginning of the show thank you so much dr miller thank you i appreciate it We will see you on the next episode. Thanks. Bye.